I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Kevin Elliott, is a philosophy professor at Michigan State University who studies the role of values in science and the ethical issues related to science and technology, such as conflicts of interest involving environmental pollution and in financial stakes in research. He also collaborates with environmental scientists at the European Food Safety Authority and the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of the book, Is a Little Pollution Good for You? Incorporating Societal Values in Environmental Research, published in 2011. He's also the author of the 2017 book, A Tapestry of Values, An Introduction to Values in Science, and the 2022 book, Values in Science for the Cambridge University Press Series, Elements in the Philosophy of Science. So Kevin, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much. It's a treat to be able to talk with you. So let's first discuss a brief overview of the philosophy of science. That's, that's a big topic, so we'll try to keep it brief. Clarifying the assumptions upon which science rests, the meaning of empiricism, all those sorts of things. And also the, the is-ought distinction, which is, I think, a real key concept. Yeah. So as I like to tell my students, just in general, when we're thinking about what philosophy is all about, I think of it as the discipline where we get to ask really big questions about everything. And we can ask big questions about art and education and history. And we can also ask big questions about science. And so I think of philosophy of science as the branch of philosophy where we can ask these really big abstract questions about science. Can we trust what scientific theories are telling us? How should we interpret them? And one of my major areas of focus is what is the proper relationship between our values and science? And you raise the is-ought distinction. One might initially think science is telling us what is the case, what's out there in the world, and values have to do with you know what we might want to be the case, what ought to be the case, things like ethics. And so you might think these are two different things and they don't really have a relationship. And if you do bring in values, you're probably messing things up because then you're trying to get results that you want as opposed to what's really out there. So you can think of these questions starting from that starting, shouldn't we be keeping science and values separate? And that's the kind of thing I'm interested in exploring. Yeah, and I think if you back up even a little bit further, science and philosophy used to be one thing. It's exactly. It's only maybe, what, a couple hundred years ago, maybe, where those two things started getting separated. Yeah, I emphasize that to my students as well, that in some ways, as disciplines got more straightforward ways to investigate the phenomena they were looking at, they almost like you could picture them crystallizing off out of philosophy. And philosophy, in some ways, got stuck with all the really tough questions that you couldn't address very well from another disciplinary perspective. So that, that's fortunate because otherwise you know, you'd have the worry that maybe philosophy would disappear, like all the other territory would be gobbled up by science and by religion and by what have you. And that has been a genuine worry that is there anything meaningful for philosophy to do anymore? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think at one time, I guess with Wittgenstein and the analytic philosophers, there was the idea that the big questions are left to science. We'll just analyze language. Right. And, that, and that sounded dry. <laughs> yes, exactly. I like to think it's still a little more interesting, but, but yeah, you're exactly right. And, and by having a philosophy of science, that implies that science has assumptions upon which it rests that are outside science. You can't scientifically evaluate an assumption very easily because you have to start somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And this does raise really interesting questions. And actually, part of the, the work that goes on in this area that I'm interested in that we sometimes call science and values 
is exploring assumptions of various sorts and how values may relate to them. I do think some people would say, we don't have to just throw up our hands and say, ah, you can't investigate assumptions empirically. One can say, okay, there's this assumption here. Maybe there are ways in which we can investigate this and, and develop evidence for or against it. It doesn't have to be these assumptions left aside as just totally a matter of faith or separate from empirical evidence. But, but those are really interesting questions to explore. And of course, one of the main concepts about assumptions is that they should be self-evident, which is begging the question in a way, what makes it self-evident? Self-evident because it's self-evident. It just has to be, and I can't imagine anything else. Yeah. And I'll say that, so we may touch on this a little later, but a really significant philosopher of science named Helen Longinot helped to push forward interest in science and values. And one of her key points was that she said, anytime we're trying to move from data that we have to a particular conclusion or a theory, that the relationship is not just utterly straightforward where the data forces you into a particular conclusion. There are, as she would put it, background assumptions in the background where you have to assess, are these data relevant? Do they provide evidential support for this conclusion? And so in that case, these kinds of assumptions, maybe they might appear self-evident to us, but she would say what's crucial is that we actually assess these, we evaluate them. She thinks this is part of why we need a scientific community with diversity within it so that others can say, actually, that assumption that you think is self-evident, where you think it's just obvious that these data support this conclusion, it's not so straightforward after all. And maybe we need to reassess these assumptions and critically evaluate them and potentially explore other assumptions. Really significant work for, for thinking about the, the issues I'm interested in. And of course, it's always fun to question what seems like a basic assumption, for instance, that there's a distinction between matter and energy. And of course, physics does away with that assumption. And then we're left with the kind of conundrum of, okay, if matter and energy are the same thing, why do they seem so different? <laughs> it, and I think that's one of the really cool lessons that we've learned about science, that we shouldn't be trusting a lot of times our initial assumptions, that we find out, hey, we're highly fallible, and so one needs to revisit these and explore the evidence for them. And, and of course, you have assumptions on the other side, too, the value side. So for instance, that it's bad to be cruel and it's good to be kind. That seems like a pretty good basic assumption, but not everyone will agree with it. And how can you really, you can't prove it because it's an assumption. Absolutely. And, and there again, what's interesting, as you probe more deeply into this, we started with the is-ought distinction. And I do think there are useful things to be said for that. But as you probe more deeply, it turns out that both sides starts to get more fuzzy. I was saying that the is side, you start realizing, gee, these things that we think we have good empirical evidence for, we are resting on some background assumptions that can be challenged. And then on the ought side, you, as you probe more fully, you realize sometimes we can seek empirical evidence that can influence our you know, views. So say you start out with certain racist views of some sort, and then you end up learning more about people coming from other backgrounds and real, and say you, you find out, well, some of my initial things I thought were the case about them actually aren't the case. That might cause you to rethink some of your ethical or value ideas. And so it turns out that these distinctions aren't quite as sharp as you might've thought. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And as a psychologist or retired psychologist, I tend to think that there, there is something, some value in understanding, for instance, human development will affect what we ought to do. 
So for instance, what are the needs of our young children for attachment? And that's affected how, for instance, children are treated in hospitals. It used to be that the parents were kept away because the kids would get upset when the parents first came back because they were expressing their, their anger, I think, that they were abandoned. <laughs> And so hospitals used to have a policy that, oh, let's just keep the parents away, even if it were weeks or even months. And I think we've, we've since learned how damaging that is. So that affects an, an ought kind of question, what, how ought we to handle children in hospitals? That's a great example. I love that. Yeah. So we can talk maybe about there being complementary aspects in the values of in science. In your book, you talk about epistemic, the same word as epistemology or the, the seeking of knowledge and social or the non-epistemic values. So th- th- there are actually values both ways. It's not just values versus science. There are values that have to do with wanting to know and how we know and the importance of evidence and some basic assumptions about what makes us confident that we know. Yeah, and, and maybe it would be helpful to just give a little quick background. I won't go too far, but Thomas Kuhn, that some of your listeners may be familiar with, this was a really a famous historian and philosopher of science during the 20th century. And uh, you know, he wrote this very influential book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, fitting kind of with what we were talking about with assumptions, suggesting that actually you can have a particular paradigm, a sort of guiding framework for a particular discipline. And then he said, you can have scientific revolutions where you realize, wow, there are some problems with this paradigm. Thomas Kuhn was a very influential historian and philosopher of science during the 20th century. And central to his really famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that he wrote, was this idea that you can have scientific disciplines that have a particular paradigm, a guiding framework that structures inquiry and and what they think is the case. But then problems can arise with that paradigm and they can shift to a very different framework or paradigm. And he suggested that science isn't just some purely rule-governed enterprise where you just follow the rules and you automatically get the right answer. He made the point that scientists are guided by a paradigm that provides a way of approaching things and you can approach things differently. Anyway, he suggested instead of thinking of science as purely rule-governed, he said that values play a role in scientific reasoning. But he was really focused on what we might call epistemic values, where he said, when you're trying to figure out what conclusion to draw or what theory to accept, two theories can both have some pretty good strengths. Maybe one is a little bit more predictively accurate. Another may have a little more explanatory power. One may seem to have kind of broader scope, but another one seems really fruitful for investigating certain kinds of phenomena. And so again, you get the sense that you can't just follow these rules and decide which to accept. You have to decide which values, like predictive power, empirical, or explanatory power, simplicity, which values do you think are more significant? And these aren't like what we might stereotypically think of as like ethical or social values. They're they're good qualities of theories within science. So anyway, I think that most philosophers would now say, yeah, this is certainly the case. Science surely involves these kinds of values, these, these good qualities of theories or hypotheses that that help us get a sense of their, their, their likelihood to be reliable or true. The more tricky question is, do we want to bring in broader social or or ethical values into our science. 
you know, as you point out in your book, the ethical values have to do with what's what choices are made of what to study and then how to study it and then how to apply it. And those are not exactly in the theory itself, but they certainly affect how the theory will then be developed. And this is a great point. So you can think of this kind of gradual realization that, huh, values have various roles to play. The first realization is these epistemic kinds of values or cognitive values surely have a role to play as we're assessing theories like Kuhn said. And then, as you pointed out, one can realize surely ethical and social values have a role to play, a legitimate role to play in deciding what we're going to investigate. We have to decide, do we want to put more money into studying cancer or studying AIDS or studying future pandemics or doing high energy particle physics? It seems very appropriate for our social values and priorities to play a role in that. And, and then deciding how to apply the science. Say we find out that there's a certain risk associated with accidents, associated with a nuclear power plant. Well, we have to decide, are we willing to accept those risks given the benefits from addressing climate change or, or aren't we? I think it's relatively uncontroversial that social and ethical values play a role there, as you're exactly right, that the trickiest question is, would we ever want social or ethical values to play a role closer to the kind of heart of scientific reasoning, if you will, where we're evaluating hypotheses or theories or in engaging in our scientific reasoning. And that's the, the toughest nut to crack, where you might think maybe we ought to keep the values out of that. Yeah, I think part of the difficulty comes from the expansion of what is a science. So I think in the old days, we thought chemistry and physics and maybe biology, those are the hard sciences and those are the real sciences. But then you start getting into social sciences and environmental science, the aspects of science that are far more complex and far more socially integrated. And then is it still science? Sometimes the, it can't, the, the capacity for doing experiments starts to recede. They can't really do experiments in political science or in economics. And then some people say political science or economics, those aren't real sciences. They're only social sciences. <laughs> yeah, so great point. So in my Tapestry of Values book, I acknowledge that a lot, because I ultimately argue there that even in these aspects of the core of scientific reasoning, if you will, I suggest that I think that these broader values can have appropriate roles to play. And I can give my argument there in, in a moment. But so I acknowledge that I'm tending to look at these more socially integrated kinds of scientists. I'm especially interested in like environmental research related to environmental pollution and things like that. But I do make a case at the end of the book that even in disciplines like physics or chemistry or molecular biology, it would be unwise to think that you can or should completely exclude values. And I can give some examples of where I think they still end up playing in. But but you do make a good point that it's it's important to think about differences between different fields of science. We don't want to paint too broad a brush and just make claims just across all these very different kinds of fields. Yeah, I think actually this would be a good moment to bring in an example. Yeah, yeah. So first, let me just point out, I mentioned Helen Longino's work earlier. And so one argument that one could give to say that we ought to allow these values to at least be kind of part of our thinking is this idea that we invariably have background assumptions. And and these background assumptions can support implicitly particular kinds of values. And we actually ought to feel comfortable bringing in our broader values as we assess these background assumptions. An example that some feminist philosophers used back in the 80s and 90s, starting to open up these discussions, 
were pointing out, say, for example, in anthropology research, the way there was often this assumption that various tools that were found were used for hunting by men. And there was this kind of man, the hunter kind of anthropological view that a lot of advances in human evolution were related to men's hunting activities. And so again, there were background assumptions involved in the background of how you interpreted various sorts of anthropological evidence and tools that were being found. And so some, as more women moved into the field, these women ended up pointing out there are some important assumptions being made here. You could interpret some of these tools, some of this evidence in a different way as being related to women's gathering activities. And so you could ultimately then argue that actually women's gathering activities played a much more crucial role in certain human evolutionary advances than the men's hunting activities. And so they would have said, by bringing our sort of feminist values to play, this played a very fruitful role in our recognizing the weaknesses of some of these assumptions and developing alternative assumptions and interpretations and so on. So that would be one way of arguing that it's helpful to bring these values in. I'll give one other different kind of example. There's a philosopher of science, Heather Douglas, who says, even in the very heart of scientific reasoning, say you have evidence, you have to decide, is there enough evidence to actually draw a conclusion? And she says, the science itself doesn't answer the question of how much evidence you ought to demand before you draw a conclusion. That's a value choice where you have to decide how bad would it be if we were to end up drawing the wrong conclusion? Is it worse to go ahead and, and make the claim and end up being wrong or to stick to your sort of initial position and not draw the claim and end up being wrong? So she gives examples from toxicology research. Say you're studying a harmful chemical or a potentially harmful chemical, and you have some studies that have been done on some animals that it seems like the chemical may be harmful, but then you have maybe some human epidemiological studies, and it's not so clear that it's harmful there. And so you have to decide, do we have enough evidence to actually say that this chemical is harmful? And she says, these decisions about standards of evidence are just pervasive across the sciences. And this will be my last point before I let you ask another question. Back to physics, you might think, surely these roles for values don't have a, have a role to play in physics, where there's a really interesting chapter in a book I edited by a philosopher of physics pointing out that I think it was when they were doing experiments to identify the Higgs boson. I think this was the particle accelerator maybe in the European Union. These physicists were having to make decisions about when they felt comfortable saying that they had actually found evidence of the Higgs boson. And they were pretty thoughtful about the fact that they set very, very high standards of evidence. I think from a statistical perspective, it was like five sigma. And part of their decision was because they had received so much public funding, they felt like it would be really embarrassing and it would set back their science if they said they had discovered it and then they realized later that they were wrong. And so they're, even in physics, they're doing what Heather Douglas would say scientists have to do, bring in these broader value considerations to say, okay, how much evidence should we demand before we actually draw our conclusion? Yeah, so in that case, it had to do with the considerations for public relations. Exactly. We were talking about the values even in, in, in physics, and of course it really relates very strongly in medicine and in public health and in environmental science, what is a strong enough claim 
so in, in physics, it might have to do with public relations, but in, in medicine and public health, it has to do with what the level of risk is. If it's something is very tiny risk, but the consequences are really extreme, then, then you get into really interesting territory. I think you also see that with things like global warming, okay, even if the chances were very small, let's say the ch chance is only a half of 1% that civilization will collapse. You know, that, that's not a very high percentage, but the consequences are so incredibly extreme that maybe we should do something about it. After all, most people don't get into car accidents, but we, we all wear seatbelts. And I think most of us would probably wear them even if it weren't required by law <laughs> and for similar reasons. Yeah, actually, and the climate change example is perfect. There's a case I give in my Tapestry of Values book um, where I discuss James Hansen, a very influential climate scientist, where he was faced back in the late 1980s with some challenging decisions where he was asked to give testimony to Congress. And he had to decide at that point... He, so. The climate scientists already at that point recognized that according to their models, we could expect with the emissions of greenhouse gases that we were going to see warming in the future. But at that point, it was pretty dicey whether there was already observable warming happening as a result of climate change. And he thought that based on their modeling and observations that you could already see some warming at that point, but by no means that all climate modelers agree with him. And he went before Congress in 1988, I believe, and he told Congress that he thought we could already see warming from climate change. And some other climate scientists were pretty irritated that he did this, but he was pretty explicit about doing exactly what Heather Douglas said scientists need to do. He said, I weighed the costs of saying something and being wrong versus the costs of not saying something and being wrong. And he said, I thought it was better to go ahead and, and make the claim, given, like you're saying, just the overall context. And so it's, it's very interesting to consider how should you weigh those consequences. But Douglas would say always implicitly, that's an issue. Even if you have some standards in your discipline, like in a lot of fields, you do your statistics and say you, you set up your statistics so that you would only, I'm not the best at this analysis, but you basically want only a 5% chance that you would see those kinds of evidence if you didn't actually have an effect. But you could set it at a 1% chance or a smaller chance like the physicist. And Douglas would say, even if your discipline has a standard like that, 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 that the discipline standard is itself making significant value judgments. And you ought to consider as a discipline, is this appropriate level? Are there cases in which we should not hold to that level of statistical significance? So one can't escape this just by saying, yeah, we typically use this approach. One ought to be thinking about it. Yeah. What would it mean to have a false positive versus a false negative? What are the consequences of missing a danger? And what are the consequences of losing credibility? Exactly. And it's really hard to weigh. And I think it's fascinating that you also see really interesting cases where, say, just recently, a lot of listeners might remember in East Palestine, Ohio, where there was the train derailment and the community was really worried about exposure to harmful chemicals. And the EPA said, you know, it looks based on our analysis, things should be okay. But some community members were, were worried, some weren't feeling so good and so on. 
there may be cases where communities, they really don't want to make a false negative error where you say, yeah, there's no problem here and end up being wrong. Whereas the scientists, they may be more worried about not making a false positive error where they don't want to draw some conclusion and then find out, oh, we, we said there was this effect and we ended up getting it wrong. And so this is a really interesting case where when you're doing science, that's really enmeshed in practical sort of real world community cases, the scientific community and the others may actually legitimately have different standards of evidence that we need to work through. And of course, it's not always quite that innocent because you sometimes have science versus propaganda, you know, that you have vested interests that are so vested that they'll hire scientists, they'll even write things for a scientist and have the scientists put their name on it, which happens in the pharmaceutical industry and other industries. So this seems to be that there must be a line beyond which it's no longer legitimate at all. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. And I think that so sometimes it's a little bit fuzzy where there's a question about maybe the pharmaceutical industry or the chemical industry or the, oh, the petroleum industry that's trying to challenge climate change. Sometimes they may be making some sort of interpretive moves with the science that seem a little suspicious but reasonable people can disagree. But then other times, I think it's just flat out beyond the pale. And some of those cases, say with the tobacco industry or with the petroleum industry, we're finding that they ended up internally recognizing, yeah, actually the science is pretty clear. Climate change is going to be happening because of what we're emitting. Or with tobacco, yes, people are getting addicted to nicotine and getting cancer, but they said different things to the public. So that's nice and straightforward. I think there are also some cases where one could say, hey, there are problems because they're just using different standards than what would typically be expected in, in this field, where they're just demanding dramatically higher amounts of evidence than one would typically expect before accepting that, say, tobacco smoking is causing cancer. Or there's an interesting example in the medical field about 20 years ago, I think it is now, that we had big scandals related to Vioxx, this drug that was used for as a pain medication. And we ended up finding out that it caused heart problems. And it turns out that the pharmaceutical, I think it was Merck, the company that made Vioxx, they had clinical trials in which it appeared that Vioxx was causing an increase in, in heart problems, but they ended up engaging in this very questionable interpretation where I think they, there was, they were comparing naproxen, which was a well-known pain medication with Vioxx. And there were a lot more heart incidences with the, the, the group exposed to Vioxx. And they ended up arguing, I think it was a, a threefold increase in, in heart uh, problems. They ended up arguing that naproxen was just decreasing heart problems by three times rather than Vioxx increasing. And so there, in principle, you could say that. I think a reasonable person in that field would recognize that this was just not a plausible claim to be making. And so I think sometimes you have that, those kinds of moves happening. Yeah, this is a kind of like a case of sophistry. And it wasn't just heart problems. These were heart deaths. Yes, yes, yes. Vioxx, and I think Celebrex, I think, was a, a, another drug in the same class. And I think it was pretty clear that the, the drug companies were suppressing that evidence. And there was a kind of a smoking gun. I think they had to pay a huge fine. And, and I, I think that they calculated in, in advance that such a fine would be only a small portion of the profit. So it was worth it. It's really very, very disturbing. <laughs> 
but but clearly that's outside of science. I and mean, that's that's a value that's really has no place in, in science or about mm. science. Yeah, and you could you could say a couple different ways. You could say certain kinds of values just should not play a role. Or you could also say that sort of the way these values ended up playing out where of just not being willing to disclose certain kinds of evidence or making inferences that are just completely wildly out of line, that that then becomes problematic. So I want to ask a different question that's maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I just was wondering if you thought that science as a system for acquiring knowledge is in some ways privileged over other forms of knowledge. And I think, I think... So the common assumption is that it somehow is, especially if it's a kind of science that has access to, to seriously empirical evidence and experimentation and replicability and all those kinds of nice things that science is supposed to do. Not all of the so-called sciences can do that. Ecology, for instance, which I think is certainly well within the realm of science, it's very difficult to do experiments on the environment. You, don't really, you can't do a controlled experiment, a comparison experiment. You just have to use a lot of kind of historical data and measurements of that sort. Yeah. So I think that what we, my, my approach would be to say we actually learn over time. We not only learn within science, but we learn about science. And so we can find out, hey, it seems science as an approach to knowing works really well. And, and but I, again, I would emphasize that there, there's so much variety, as you've been rightly noting, across the sciences. So I think philosophers of science are pretty suspicious of the idea that you can just a single pristine scientific method and this is how science works. There are different kinds of approaches across different areas of science, but we have found over time, wow, overall, the sciences tend to get us good information that tends to work well and that we can rely on. And some sciences, like you point out, that can be more experimental, they tend to be all the more reliable and others where we have to engage in more distant kind of observation and inference. Well, you know, there's more potential for, for getting ourselves in trouble, but they can also do pretty well. And so we learn over time about the sciences and what kinds of methods work and, and what kinds of errors we can run into and how we can resolve them. It's an ongoing learning process. I think that's the reason why, for instance, psychology, which is a science, and I'm, I can say that because I am a psychologist, that you, you can have 50 or 100 theories about what causes anxiety and, and you can make certain appeals to the brain that there are certain things that we know about the brain but even it's very hard to nail things down into a single model as in thomas kuhn it's just you have this plethora of models and they, all of them seem to work pretty well in the hands of someone who believes in them yeah and again this is not my area of expertise but i found it really interesting even just recently hearing about the work of the some folks who have been pointing out that a lot of our psychological experiments and work have been with people from i think they use the acronym weird western educated industrialized rich and democratic and recognizing that again we may find out hey there are some errors that we didn't formerly appreciate, where if you look at very different cultures, you may sometimes get different results. And so we find out over time, yeah, maybe we need to correct for this additional sort of problem that we weren't thinking about previously. So maybe you have the sciences and you have the science-ish sciences. <laughs> Another thing to point out is that there's a lot of interesting debate that has played out in the philosophy of science about should we be scientific realists, where realism would be saying that what the sciences are saying, scientific theories 
are giving us true information about the world versus one could be more of an instrumentalist where one says the goal of science is to give us reliable information that allows us to act, that predicts well, but maybe we don't want to make such deep claims about getting at ultimate truths. And we may find out that different areas of science can, we, we ought to be making more or less serious truth claims about different areas of science. Maybe we say, yeah, in molecular biology, yeah, we actually are getting at DNA sequences and things that are out there, but but maybe we don't want to be quite as confident that we have the ultimate truth about quantum mechanics or things like that. We might say, yeah, there, it's reliable, it's giving us good predictions, but maybe trying to interpret what's going on with some of those theories, we ought to be a little more careful about. And I think most of us are pretty attached to the idea that truth it means that we have a kind of a model that corresponds to reality, that it's not, it's not just useful, but it's actually modeling reality in some way, even though clearly we're not able to see reality as such. There are no colors out there. It's, it's wavelengths of light. And yet the color seems so darn real. And, and yes, and of course, I don't think we need to to get your bore your listeners with a big long discussion of different theories of truth. But you're absolutely right that there are interesting questions to be said about even when we're talking about truth, what are we getting at? And and I tend to feel more comfortable talking about reliability when it comes to science, just because there are so many debates about uh, about the nature of truth and what we mean by it, and so on. So let's get back to the title of your book, Tapestry of Values. And I'm wondering if we we could think of it this way. I I think the the way that you thought of it, I think, is that you have multiple, multiple values in any kind of scientific endeavor. So the science that gets produced is this whole cloth of social values and epistemic values and contradictory values and you name it. I was wondering if it might be useful to think of it this way, that you have the warp and the weft as in weaving. You have the epistemic values going one way and then at a right angle to them, you have the social values and that you really can't have a cloth unless you have both types of values. There really is no such thing as a pure epistemic science. There's always going to be some values woven in in some way, even if it's what you study or how you study it, how you apply it, even even the hardest of the hard sciences that you have to have both strands going in each direction. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The the main emphasis that I just wanted to to place there with the idea of a tapestry is thinking back a little bit to to Kuhn's work, the idea of, he said, science isn't completely rule-governed, where you could like feed data into a computer and it will spit out what you ought to accept. And I was thinking about some of the, say, the warp, some of the threads going one way, may involve relatively straightforward rule-governed activities where you say, okay, we're going to use this statistical method, and then you can analyze the data using that statistical method or certain kinds of logical principles. But then you also have, say, the threads going the other way where you always have these sorts of more value-laden choices like, should we use this statistical method versus that one? Should we collect these data versus those? Should we exclude certain data because they seem to be erroneous or not? And then does this evidence actually provide the kind of support that we thought? And I guess I wasn't drawing as sharp a distinction between the kind of epistemic values and the kind of social values. I think sometimes it can 
like back to our original discussion about the is and the ought, that as you investigate more and more closely, the distinction between them starts to get messier. But the key message I wanted to get across with the tapestry is that you've got all these messy, value-laden choices that are invariably interspersed with, with the more analytic, rule-governed aspects of doing science. And I'm wondering, in this last segment, we have about 20 minutes left, if we could talk about how scientists should best communicate their values to the general public. Now, now some scientists would say, oh, no, 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 no. We have to stay pure and not talk about social values. That's for the public or the politicians to decide. We're just going to give them information. And then other scientists say, no, no, wait, wait a second. We can't really avoid it. And we're being irresponsible if we don't communicate the values. And I'm just curious about, is that a debate that's happening among scientists and not just among philosophers of science? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. And yeah, and, and I think we can talk about various aspects of this. There's a chapter in my Tapestry of Values book where I say one approach one might take as a scientist is to, and I, I'm borrowing this term from another philosopher, Carl Craner, you might think that scientists should keep their hands clean and just leave the, the dirty hands value stuff to the policymakers. So it's like clean hands science, dirty hands public policy. And the problem with that is to actually, it would become surprisingly difficult to keep one's hands totally clean of values once you realize that values can be affecting your standards of evidence. They can be affecting, we didn't talk too much about this, but they can be affecting the kind of the categories and the concepts and the terms that one uses. Back to some of the fields where one might think that values aren't playing a role, say molecular biology, it's amazing how much metaphorical language gets used there in terms of like coding of DNA and information and so on, the ways in which th this language expresses particular ways of thinking about things that could be somewhat value-laden. So anyway, I think it's really unrealistic to think that scientists can keep their hands perfectly clean, even just the way they frame information. Scientists, if they're going to keep getting money for their work, they have to highlight the, the relevance of their work. And, and, and then that inv invariably involves framing, talking about its strengths and weaknesses, how it fits in with other social phenomena and so on. So I would suggest that scientists have to think to some extent about how to present their work acknowledging that their presentation is going to be somewhat value-laden. And so I've been interested in ways of trying to be more transparent about values. I think that there's a lot of challenging questions about that. There's also a lot of work now wondering about ways to engage the public with some areas of science, like community-based participatory research or community-engaged research. In some of these areas of science that really do connect with social issues, you might actually be able to have some interaction between the communities that are going to be affected and the scientific community. And then one last point, and then you can respond. Sometimes the scientific community can just recognize and say, hey, no matter how we communicate, there are going to be some values supported versus others. Maybe it's more responsible to communicate in one way versus another. And I think an example that lots of your listeners will, will recognize, as we had different COVID variants arising, 
initially people would be like labeling these variants based on particular places in the world they were coming from. Ah, this variant arising in Brazil or South Africa. And then they recognized that that seemed somewhat problematic in the sense that it could stigmatize particular places. And the World Health Organization said we should be using Greek letters instead. And this ties with some decisions they made in the past to say maybe it's stigmatizing to be labeling diseases based on particular places or people or things like that. And we should use, and and there can be disadvantages to these abstract labels of alpha or omega or omicron or delta, but they decided, hey, that's better than some of these other kinds of value-laden ways of speaking. I think one thing you could say is that the values of science, particularly in its application, is too important to leave to scientists. So even if scientists were comfortable talking about their values and communicating that to the public, they are not the experts on the implications of science, which is really interesting, I think. For instance, with the whether it's climate change or medical policies or whether to wear a mask or things like that, it, it, it needs to be social engagement, community engagement. A recent, in a recent interview with Martin Wolf, we talked about there being like citizen groups, almost like a jury that you gather together a, 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 at random, a random sample of, of citizens who spend, let's say, a year learning about a particular subject, whether it's a scientific one or not, and then acting as, as an advisory group or even more than an advisory group where they, they lay out what's acceptable. Yeah, I I love that point. And I think you're exactly right. One of the lessons that one might take from my work is that it probably doesn't work to just have the scientists off in a little, picture them in a little closed room somewhere doing their science and then just spit out information and then let everybody else figure out what to do with it. That we actually need this kind of engagement between the scientific community and others to explore these questions of what standards of evidence are appropriate what crucial assumptions are being made, how should this information be framed, and so on. And one way is to engage with members of the public, communities that will be affected. One might say that this is part of what might make philosophers of science useful, or historians of science, or sociologists of science, that you could have them teaming up with scientists to explore some of these ramifications. There's this interesting project called the STIR Project, Socio-Technical Integration Research, that came out of Arizona State University, where they actually placed people from history or philosophy or sociology of science in scientific labs to act almost like the picture of Socrates, the gadfly, asking tough questions, where they would say, now, why are you doing things this way? Or why are you talking about your work this way? Why are you asking these questions? And so I think there can be a variety of creative approaches like that for trying to help think about all these value dimensions of scientific practice. It's almost like a Jiminy Cricket on the shoulders of each of the scientists as they're talking about their work. But part of it that we haven't mentioned yet is about the vested interest of scientists in doing their work. You know, that they, they can, may get you know, super invested in, in for the sake of their career or just or their ego or whatever, to pursuing a, a subject regardless of the consequences. And I think we're seeing that debate happening now with AI. There are a lot of really high-level computer scientists are saying, wait a second, we should take a moratorium on this, re- this research because it may lead to awful consequences. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. And another, I mentioned Heather Douglas earlier, she also has some work where she talks about the danger of technical sweetness that, that scientists or technologists can feel like some development is, is so technically sweet that it's just like almost irresistible for them to pursue it. And one needs to have some more thoughtfulness about whether that's always the case. We can see that, like you said, in AI, we can also see it in, say, like debates about gain of function research back to talking about the pandemic. The, there clearly are benefits to studying how various viruses or other pathogens could mutate to cause problems. But there is the danger that if scientists alone working in that area are trying to assess whether it's worth doing that research, they're going to be influenced perhaps by their background and their interest in doing that research. And so one does need a wide ranging discussion um, about when it makes sense to do certain kinds of research and what the safeguards should be. I think that's, that's absolutely right. And having a, a really good scientific mind does not necessarily imply having a good ethical mind. They're very different skills. <laughs> That's right, which once again highlights why one needs this kind of discussion among different scholars, among different people. So I think one of the lessons I take out of my Is a Little Pollution Good For You book and my Tapestry of Values book is that we need to be creative about exploring ways to bring different kinds of people together in thoughtful ways to, to think about and hash out these ideas, because you're absolutely right. Individuals are going to have particular perspectives and strengths. And, and this goes back to Helen Longino, who I mentioned earlier, the idea that you need this kind of critical evaluation of, of the assumptions that individuals bring to science. So she actually says that objectivity is a social phenomenon rather than an individual phenomenon. And you might say that applies in science and in ethics, that you can't just have a single person sort of gritting their teeth and saying, I'm going to be objective here. They have particular assumptions that they're bringing to the work. And so one needs different people with different perspectives and experiences and, and, and experiences with evidence to evaluate these assumptions and help us recognize their strengths and weaknesses. So you're suggesting that objectivity is an outcome of the whole endeavor, that there's a kind of self-correcting aspect of it that, re that requires more people. It can't be done individually because not everyone can see the whole elephant. That's that's right. And 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 more people and and people with differing perspectives and experiences as, as well. Because if you just bring a whole bunch of people with the same kinds of life experiences from the same geographical and, and life context, they may not pick up on some of these assumptions that other people might. So this is a little bit a specialized kind of question, but what about scientific evidence that comes from absolutely nefarious means? So like the Nazi medical experiments or the Tuskegee syphilis experiments in the US, is it ethical to even use the data once it's been derived? Oh, that's such a, a good question and a challenging one that I don't have uh, sort of decisive answers for you on that. But I would say that it's, again, that's where one wants to bring in a diverse range of perspectives that I was just recently hearing that I think a lot of kind of Western ethicists would maybe say, if you're not encouraging further nefarious activities like this, that maybe it is appropriate to go ahead and if you can benefit a lot of people from making use of that information, maybe you should. But I was recently hearing them from some indigenous ethical perspectives, they might be much less likely to think that would be appropriate, that sort of the 
the knowledge is or the appropriateness of, of using that knowledge is more closely tied to where it came from and how it was developed. And so I think there can be some legitimately different perspectives on this that uh, different groups need to hash through. Yeah. And, and when you suggest that maybe we should get a whole big group of diverse people together to decide this, it, it seems like that has less to do with truth per se than it does with social cohesion. If you can get a really wide consensus, then maybe it won't lead to terrible contentiousness and conflict. You make a fascinating point there. I think you could make both ethical and practical and epistemic or truth-based arguments for these kinds of things. I actually emphasize in some of my work that, that yes, this, this idea that you want engagement among diverse folks, that you could make a kind of pragmatic argument. You're going to actually be able to function better as a society that way. You could make an ethical argument that people who are going to be affected by these decisions ought to have some say in it. And you can argue that you're actually going to get better information out of it if you have this kind of engagement. And I readily acknowledge some of your skeptical listeners may say, this sounds like a recipe for a mess trying to bring all these people together. One also has to be very thoughtful about how one does this. And of course, there are really interesting questions about how do you bring everyone up to speed about the sort of the factual information available so people aren't just speaking without knowledge? How do you, when you do educate people about the issues, how do you do that thoughtfully where you're not indoctrinating people into a particular perspective where then, and this gets very complicated. I'm, I'm not offering the, the be all end all simple solution, but I think this is important to, to explore. It's not just complicated. You have also the danger of politicization. So for instance, with climate change, you have the vested interest, the fossil, fossil fuel industry having a kind of shell research companies that are putting out quote unquote research findings that prove or demonstrate or argue that climate change is either not happening or not happening as badly. I think some of that is, I think, waning now. I think there's stronger consensus that global warming is happening, but there's still disinformation about how serious it's going to be. And that actually raises another really interesting issue right now that philosophers of science are thinking about, which is when and how do we respond to dissenting voices, those who dissent from kind of mainstream scientific views? There's a longstanding tradition in the philosophy of science saying that it's important to have this kind of criticism, that again, part of objectivity is hearing opposing voices. This seems central to science, to good science, but then when you have dissent being weaponized by what some people will call the merchants of doubt, the tobacco industry had internal documents saying doubt is our product. We can, we can keep people use cigarettes if we can just generate doubt about how harmful they are. And so one then has to decide, can we identify problematic kinds of doubt or how do we respond to dissenting views in an appropriate fashion? And once again, there are no simple answers, but this is why I think it's good to have philosophers of science around helping to think about this. Yeah, it's, it's really tricky because, yes, as you say, science depends on dissent, dissenting voices and argumentation and a competition of, of ideas. On the other hand, if you have some of the ideas coming from illegitimate sources because this, the vested interests are so powerful, they're actually lying, <laughs> then, then that, I think they deserve to be called out. I said, wait a second, this is not a legitimate dissent. Not all dissent is okay. That's right. That's right. And so it would be great. And I think your example of lying is a good one that you might be able to say, look, certain cases like that are just clearly problematic. And maybe we can say if you have evidence that this dissent is being formulated in bad faith, 
like some of the examples we were giving earlier, one could just call it out. But I think there's a wide array of more complicated sort of cases in the gray area. And this goes back to our discussion earlier about the fact that sometimes it's not completely clear whether particular value influences are problematic or whether they're appropriate. And in your book, you you rightly argue that scientists ought to be more upfront about their values, not necessarily the most personal ones. I'm doing this to further my career, <laughs> but, but but certainly values in terms of life. I think it's 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 more important to be careful about something as potentially catastrophic as climate change. I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 90% sure. I think the evidence shows this level of, of certainty. And to be upfront about those things, that I have a higher value for security than I do for adventure, for instance. And I think a really nice example of that would be, say, the Environmental Protection Agency. When they are doing risk assessments, there are invariably these kinds of judgments that have to be made where, say, you're studying chemicals on rodents at relatively high doses, and you have to make assumptions about how should we extrapolate down the effects of these chemicals at lower doses on humans, on particularly sensitive humans, people who are pregnant or or so on. And so they have particular approaches that they use and they acknowledge that, hey, they may not always have decisive evidence, but this is how they make these, what I would call value-laden judgments, these inferences. And they acknowledge that they do it in a way that tends to be what they think would be protective for public health. And so one can acknowledge and say, hey, those are values, if in doubt, we're trying to be a little bit more cautious here because that's our mission. And so I think that kind of acknowledgement that in general, we're trying to put the emphasis on public health as opposed to say economic development for the chemical industry, it's helpful to just be upfront about that. So in the remaining few minutes, so what would you say is the kind of the cutting edge in this field of values and science? Yeah, good question. I think you have done a nice job of leading our discussion into some of those cutting edge areas. So one would be, once we acknowledge that science is this kind of tapestry of that incorporates all these value-laden decisions, how do we decide when the values are playing an appropriate role versus an inappropriate role? If it's too simple to just say, we don't allow any value considerations in science, then do you make the distinction based on what are good values versus bad values? Or do you make it based on the roles that the values are playing? Or do you base it based on whether you've had a a diverse enough discussion to evaluate these influences and say, okay, we all feel comfortable with this particular approach. So how do you decide what appropriate influences of values are? I think that's one big area. And then another question that we didn't get into quite as much is some people might say that we shouldn't focus just on individual scientists making these value-laden choices. We should think more about the broader institutional structures that influence these values. So things like patent policies or funding decisions about science, public versus private funding. I mentioned the like conventions of disciplines. What in particular disciplines do they typically expect the standards of evidence to be? So all these kinds of big social factors and how do they support particular values over others. And, you know, we were just talking about the issues associated with appropriate and inappropriate scientific dissent. I think those are really important issues as well. Yeah, so I think you're getting at how to design the incentive systems for research. Exactly. For instance, patents are often thought of as being a big incentive for innovation, 
On the other hand, it also can stifle knowledge because as long as the patent is held by just one company, then it prevents other people from working on it. So this is a kind of natural tension between those two. Exactly, exactly. And and this gets back to your questions about AI and my bringing up gain of function research and so on, the issues of what kinds of research we want to support, what kinds of research we'll allow, what kinds of research we subtly encourage because of patent policies and so on. I think this is probably a good time to end. Kevin Elliott, a, a philosophy professor at Michigan State University, who's written a book, A Tapestry of Values, an Introduction to Values in Science. Thank you so much for coming up to Delving In. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.